to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Latasha Jennings. She is the Lead Project Manager at Lead. Let everyone advance with dignity. Latasha, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks for having me. Um, we are sitting in Pillsbury United Communities in the an in-person conversation, which I don't get to do very much anymore. So thank you for letting me come join you over here to talk about some work you're basing out of this office, but is uh, bigger and different than just um, one neighborhood or one thing. Uh, but when I heard about LEAD through, I think it was Project Greenlight, uh, something along those lines, uh, I thought, wow, i got to learn more about that. So could you begin by just telling us a little bit about LEAD and what that is? Sure. So LEAD is a public safety initiative. Um, It's a new approach to supporting and helping to keep people out of the criminal justice system who are coming into frequent contact or or at risk for frequent contact with law enforcement due to behavioral health needs, extreme poverty and or homelessness, things like that. Um, So our goal is to connect individuals um, to long-term intensive case management in the community, community community-based care, um, and to support them here in the community and hopefully help them to avoid future criminal justice system contact. And how did this particular idea of engaging in this, especially from a public safety perspective, as opposed to just a, a health initiative idea that maybe was around before, how did this begin? So this started with the Greenlight Fund Twin Cities. They're a philanthropic organization, um, and they take a unique approach um, to engaging with communities, identifying community needs, and then looking outward to programs across the country that can help to fill that gap. Um, So this really started with, like I said, Greenlight Fund Fund Twin Cities, um, and through their engagement and talking with the community members, identified public safety as a high priority need, especially along the East Lake Street corridor where the LEAD program is going to be focused in its first launch. Um, So they did a scan across the country, looked at multiple different organizations and programs doing public safety work rooted in the community, and then identified LEAD as a promising program to bring to the Minneapolis neighborhood um, to support and bolster public safety here. And just a little context for people listening that may not be aware, the Lake Street Corridor that you're talking about is very close to the site of the murder of George Floyd, which was then followed by um, you know, community uprisings and a lot of property damage, a lot of still to this day uh, ongoing conflict in community that you know, maybe preceded uh, that particular tragedy, but you know, is different now, I think, after that very high-profile international conversation about what is policing and safety and justice look like. Uh, So that area in particular has been affected. We're speaking today from North Minneapolis, which has also had um, its fair share of reverberations from police violence and murder and all of those pieces. And a lot of concern about, as you said, um, community safety within that context. So there's a lot happening here that may also be happening in other communities, but in Minneapolis, that's one specific uh, instance. Um, and one way to think about community safety is, you know, traditional policing. Um, and this does not issue that necessarily, or does it? Or how do you talk about working with what you're doing in how traditional policing is thought about? Yes. So I think it's important to include here, too, that Minneapolis Police Department is a part of this work um, and involved in this work as well, Um, along with other criminal justice system actors like our city attorney's office, our county public defender's office. Um, And what LEAD really does is reorient the typical 
response of law enforcement, arrest, prosecution um, in that trajectory um, and brings these entities together to work together in a different way um, and to lean on case management services through the LEAD program. The LEAD program, our police department still has the decision-making power and the ability to make an arrest. Okay. Um, what LEAD does a little bit differently, um, and it provides an additional it provides an additional resource to Minneapolis Police Department for them to be able to lean on us to provide a public health response um, rather than their typical response to try to meet people in a different way. Um, especially for individuals who have been arrested before, who have been cycled through the criminal justice system before, and that sort of response hasn't produced an improved outcome for them in terms of their behavioral health or them getting into housing or them getting linked to gainful employment. Um, so what this does is it's an in intentional partnership to give the police department a different resource for individuals who they've come into contact with before who haven't had success in the general um, criminal justice system as usual. And are you up and running in Minneapolis now, or is this kind of beginning at this point, or what, what's the time frame look like for how long you've been trying to do this? Yes, we are still in the early stages of implementation. Okay. Um, one of the big milestones was hiring the project manager myself, so I've been on the job for about two months now. Um, we have identified our case management organization that we will be working with, and that will be the family partnership along East Lake Street. Okay. And we're currently in conversations with them around a timeline for hiring, onboarding case managers, and are really looking to launch this during the fall of this year. So these folks, the case managers, the people that you're trying to coordinate, are not public service employees. They're working, in this case, you mentioned the Family Partnership in the Twin Cities. That's a fairly well-known nonprofit organization, not a civil service organization. And asking civil service people to call on outside partners is not traditional. At least I don't hear about it a lot. Is that part of how this is different and changing? It is. It's And it's very intentional that both my position as the project manager and our case manager positions are not housed within a civil service agency. Um, for both myself and those case managers to operate in a way that's independent of, and it's um, specifically for the project management aspect, it's really important for my position to be a neutral third party position outside of the other public service agencies. Um, and it gives us a a level of um, autonomy to see the big picture for our also our um, our dedication and passion is to the lead program itself to helping our clients and then we can navigate all of the other stakeholders who are involved in this and help and help to steward um, the entire team together to further lead. So that autonomy, that kind of level of separation is an evolution in thinking about this, um, as I understood it, because you mentioned in our earlier conversation before we started recording that the acronym used to be something different too, uh, that LEAD stood for something. If you can kind of talk about the history of what that was and how it became uh, let everyone advance with dignity instead of what was the prior name? Uh, prior, it was originally launched as law enforcement assisted diversion. Okay. Um, so LEAD was originated in 2011 in Seattle, Washington, um, in partnership again with law enforcement um, to provide them with a resource to be able to support individuals um, who are struggling with behavioral health needs in that community. 
Um, as a result of the murder of George Floyd here in Minneapolis um, and the unrest that ensued, the National LEAD program had to sort of sit back and think, what does this mean for us? Mm -hmm. People are calling for alternatives, um, an alternative to response to calling law enforcement. Right. Um, I've heard from community, too, that they feel uncomfortable dialing 911 for someone that they're seeing in the community community that they know needs help and support, but they're not sure if law enforcement is the right call um, for that. Um, so in response to that reckoning um, and trying to figure out where does law enforcement assisted diversion go um, from there, the program decided to shift to let everyone advance with dignity. And what let everyone advance with dignity does is decenters law enforcement as the gatekeepers into the lead program. Um, so it puts that referral power into the hands of community members. Like I said, those that are seeing people who need support, who need help in their communities um, and think that a community based support would be a good fit for them. And it allows them to call lead to call myself and say, Hey, I have this person who I've seen in the community. I think they'd be a great fit for the lead program. Could you have your case manager reach out to them? Um, so that's what this iteration of lead does. It places the, the power and really the ownership of community safety into the hands of community. I, I appreciate you clarifying that because I did think to myself originally when you talk about the being able to be a resource for law enforcement to contact, if that was the only way to help you get into connection with people that might need some assistance, uh, I do I can see where that would be different. But if that is a way, um, how then do we help others in community recognize? Because I've had this question in my head plenty of times where um, I've seen somebody who's clearly struggling and going, all right, I don't feel comfortable calling the police. Who else do I call? I mean, that's been a consistent problem. So how do people in the neighborhood start to think of when you're ready and, and you're still hiring and this is new and I know the plans are being developed, but um, how do you envision someday people thinking, I know of this other thing and here's how I get a hold of them? So we do, we are building and we'll continue to build this out, but do have a website for our program um, that will be a place for referrals um, when we do have that as an option. Um, I also am planning just a large, wide community marketing and communications um, push around this program so people know what it is. Um, they have the phone number that they can call. They have my email address that they can reach out to as well. Um, also plan to have a high visible um, presence in the community as well. So people know who I am, they know who our case managers are, and they also feel comfortable just approaching us when they see us on the street and say, hey, I've seen this person, I think they might be a good fit. They're usually hanging out at this intersection, could you engage with them? Um, so really want this to be something that um, community members are aware of, that they feel comfortable reaching out to, and that they also know who we are on a personal level and not just the website, which will be there, um, but they know who we are as people, and they know us when, and they'll know us when they see us in the community. So one of the challenges that came up after the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis was that question about resources um, and how much was put into traditional law enforcement and policing versus what might be available for mental health services or social services or other things. Um, what you're proposing so far with the focus on Lake Street is a little bit more contained, a little bit smaller. But if it's successful and people are interested in adopting that model, how does that end up getting paid for? Does that part of the conversation with community? How does that, well, for, how, how is the pilot even getting paid for, for that matter? I'm not even sure about that. 
Yeah, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit too about what we're calling our policy coordinating group that provides oversight for this. And I think that'll help to also lead into that question around who's paying for this and how do we um, access resources for a lead. Um, so currently, um, our policy coordinating group consists of the Minneapolis Office of the Mayor, mm-hmm. our Minneapolis City Attorney's Office, um, our elected officials that represent the East Lake Street Corridor, including our Hennepin County Commissioner from District 4 and our Minneapolis City Council Member of Ward 9. Hennepin County's Health and Human Services is at the table with us. And like I mentioned before, our Minneapolis Police Department, mm-hmm. Metro Transit Police Department, our Hennepin County Public Defender's Office, St. Vincent de Paul Thrift Store, I'm from the community, Thompson Reuters, Lake Street Council, Greenlight Fund Twin Cities, um, as well as my organization, Pillsbury United Communities and the American Indian Community Development Corporation. Okay. Um, and some of those in- entities are funders of this work, including the Greenlight Fund Twin Cities, which has made a large investment over four years to fund this initial launch of the pilot program on East Lake Street. Um, the Minneapolis City Attorney's Office has also made an investment, along with a number of philanthropic organizations. So that's who's providing our current funding for this current launch. Um, But what we're hoping is that as we launch this program, as we evaluate it, and also as we're looking at how is this impacting dollars moving through different services. So in other places, um, LEAD has demonstrated cost savings within the criminal justice sector because there are less people getting arrested and booked, there are less days in jail, there's less time um, spent in court prosecuting cases. Um, And so LEAD really also advocates for reinvestment of those cost savings back into the program to expand capacity um, for the East Lake Street Corridor and hopefully beyond across Minneapolis. Right, because I, I can see why one would start there and in, in, in identifying a, a community. But if it is successful there and that works, then I think there's many others. I actually live in St. Paul across the river, so um, you know the, I don't know the, when an opportunity like that may expand outside the city of Minneapolis to other um, areas, other communities. But I think a lot of people might be looking towards this to say, um, can we successfully engage charities in this part of the work as opposed to thinking it all needs to be public employees because that's traditionally how we've thought about a response to somebody in crisis is fire or police or you know some public employee response and you know while they still may be part of this and communicating with it it's not necessarily that that would be the only um, way to reach you and in, in some cases if somebody wasn't in an emergent space but they were clearly struggling and somebody asked for help they might not ever get involved in the conversation. Um, And then thinking about how that continues to get funded as a charitable work is a little different. And I I don't know yet, you know, what that looks like or how that envisions. I'm not sure that you know that yet. No? I don't have a clear answer, no. Well, and I think that's one of the challenging things about nonprofit organizations in general is always thinking we all have really good ideas on how to help community and we run into these barriers of how are we going to get that part of it paid for because individual donors are one thing. But I do think like in this particular case, you're changing or you're trying to address a change in a, a model of what has traditionally been funded through taxpayer dollars. And maybe that's a part of this uh, conversation, or maybe it becomes a bigger part of this conversation. As you said, more of that money that is coming in from the taxpayer is just being reinvested into those community-based partners instead of to the civil service employees that 
have these other responsibilities. Um, but I can see that being a challenging conversation for, for public officials anyway. Uh, has that already been expressed this early, or is it just too soon to be hearing from any of your public officials like, oh, what happens when people start asking to divert money from police and fire? I think we're a little early to yeah. have that conversation. Um, we have made have submitted some requests through the current city's budget cycle, but we haven't too early in the process to know yet. So I think another flip side of that problem of, you know, how does it get paid for it is, is how many people might be involved and want to be involved. There are going to be people with specializations in mental health care or social services or um, language-based services for people that may not have English as a first language and all of those sorts of things. When you listed your partners, you, you listed some folks that I'm familiar with as a Twin Cities resident. I know who those charities are, but I could also probably come up with a half a dozen more that would probably go, well, we have a lot of things we could do to help if somebody were to kick us in. Um, how do you decide uh, in this process uh, who gets a, a spot at what table when? So as part of this too, I'm thinking really intentionally about how we can reinvest in our community organizations mm -hmm. that are also could provide case management support, particularly organizations that are black, indigenous, or other organizations that primarily serve and are oriented towards our people of color in our mm -hmm. communities. And there's an intentionality too of thinking about and identifying as we start and looking towards the the future for expansion of identifying organizations, particularly small grassroots organizations that are um, either starting to provide this similar services to the community or want to start providing these types of services to the community to think about how can we reinvest these dollars into those small black indigenous, mm -hmm. um, other organizations um, that are oriented towards serving people of color? How can we build their capacity up to take ownership of this work as well, um, who have an investment, who are in the communities as well, um, to build their capacity to support the community? Um, so that's a part of LEAD2 is thinking about how can we reinvest um, into the community to support the community. Because some of those folks are going to be providing broader services than just uh, immediate crisis. Um, and I don't know if people think about contacting a public service organization as something that they only do when there's more of an immediate, that person needs help or I feel threatened or whatever the, the immediacy might be. But rather, as you described it, because I just passed a person on my way over here sitting at an intersection where you know, she's not in an immediate crisis, but I, I visibly to me could use some connection to people and probably some other kinds of help. But um, but there wasn't any, you know, anybody's in danger. She didn't look like she was in danger at that moment kind of thing. And you think, how do we connect bef besides calling the police? And if people start thinking of lead as an opportunity, then does that connect into a more proactive means of thinking about community connection rather than waiting for crisis? Yeah, and lead is really designed to meet people ideally before they head into crisis. Or so I think that individual that you saw on your way here would have been a perfect lead referral, a perfect lead candidate. Um, especially because our case management is designed to be long-term support. Um, there is no end date or deadline to receiving lead case management services. Once a person is in, they are in for as long as they want to be with us. Um, so we want to support people 
to get to a better place than where they were when they came into contact with us. Um, and I'd say for a lot of people, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're in a, you know, immediate medical crisis or an immediate mm -hmm. me mental health crisis. Um, it's really, you know, they've been struggling a long time with behavioral, chronic behavioral health needs or chronic homelessness, and they need someone who's there to take time to build trust um, and to help link them into services that they've been really disconnected from for a very long time. As an advocate of the nonprofit sector in general, I, I sometimes find myself looking at the resources of government and thinking, you know, is there a broader opportunity to re-divert some of that into more community-based organizations that don't necessarily have a government employee running them? And I, I would think that that's tricky for the council members and the the council, the county commissioners, and all those types of folks to. Um, be in that spot of saying we want accountability for taxpayer dollars and we want a different level of efficacy than maybe we've seen under traditional service delivery. Um, I presume, you know, Hennepin County has some social workers on staff. I don't know them, but I'm going to assume that there are some. Um, do they get involved or, or are we really thinking at this point of lead as our connection to community-based organizations and not other government players that are not emergency people? It's going to be a both and approach, okay. um, really driven by our clients. If our clients feel comfortable accessing medical care through the county, um, our case managers will link them to that. If they feel more comfortable in a community-based clinic that's independent of a government agency, we'll refer them to that instead. So it's really driven by what does the client feel most comfortable with? What in type of environment do they feel most comfortable in? And then the case manager working to identify the right the right resource for them based on that. All right. I want to get a little nonprofit wonky for just a moment, and I, I don't know your background, so if, <laughs> forgive me if this is not something you really want to dive into, but um, I, I always am thinking about evaluation and how do you know that this is a better outcome than what we've tried before. And one of those things to me is understanding what are the outcomes look like today. And I don't know if you feel like you've got good data on how many people might be in crisis that don't get assistance from traditional uh, law enforcement or civil service systems or whatever because they're not trusting or they have other issues or whatever the reason may be versus what we might be able to do under LEAD. So do you feel like you've got some good starting point information about the level of need in community that you might be able to measure against in a year or three years or four years when this initial round is kind of running out to say we've known that we've made some bigger difference? I think that we have, for example, um, data on um, where are 911 calls coming in from mm -hmm. sure. um, that we can compare before pre-lead and post-lead to sort of see oh. what where we're moving the needle there. Um, right now, I we don't have great data on, for example, the number of people in the community right now um, who would be lead candidates. Right. Um, I am a very data-driven person, though. So part of my plan, <laughs> though, is to start thinking of, is starting to think about um, how do we evaluate this program, sort of given what we know in terms of limited data now, but what do we want to collect um, from our first enrollees at the beginning of their touch with LEAD, um, from community members, too, who are making the referrals yeah. at the beginning. Um, so a big part of that evaluation component will be um, assessing how 
do lead clients perceive the program to be working? How do community members perceive the program to be working? Is there a perception of improved community and public safety, both from the client side and from the community member side as well? Um, so we'll be looking at that. And also for our clients looking at um, how is their trajectory towards gainful employment changed? How right. has their trajectory towards shelter or permanent housing um, changed? And then are, are they still coming into contact with law enforcement? Um, how are we moving the needle there for them as well? So there will be an evaluation component to assess um, what we don't know quite yet and hopefully to see what that impact of LEAD is in the community. Um, to see what we're doing well, and then to also see where we could also course correct in the future if we're not meeting the the metrics that we're hoping to meet. Um, uh, Wilder Foundation here in Minnesota has done a pretty good job over the years of doing a, a census of people without permanent shelter. Um, but even that is only every three years because of the level of intensity of trying to gather that data more comprehensively to, to really cover an area about people in need and understand what's going on with them is huge. And even with the resources of Wilder, they can't do a lot of that all the time. So, you know, it's some of the better data we have about that particular portion of our community, but it's not great because it's so cost uh, prohibitive to gather all of that. Uh, so I'm assuming that may be part of the very difficult balance you're trying to strike here is um, you and I would like to see a lot of inter information right away. But if it's not readily available, I assume you're going to have to kind of make do with some proxies or, or think through those more qualitative experiential pieces that you can gather and talk about those differences. Exactly. And a large part of um, my work to date has been just conversations with community members to understand what are you, what are you seeing in your community? Where are some problematic behaviors and activities that are happening in the neighborhood that the LEAD program should focus? Um, have identified a few hot spots along the East Lake Street corridor where we're thinking about prioritization in terms of outreach by the case managers um, in this first iteration. So it has been a lot of that qualitative sort of hearing from the community where they're seeing the problems and where do they think that we should focus. So I think that one of the challenges is, well, so many, uh, about all of the work that most charities do. But in this particular case, I think um, as a pilot, wanting to see what we learn from this to talk about expanding the idea to other places, assuming that we're seeing some success that makes sense to me that you would see. Um, but the, now people are going to want to hear from you directly and, and have that kind of conversation. And that's another capacity question of how do you help other people learn about what's going on here? So uh, Greenlight is funding your work here in this pilot phase. Are they thinking about how they transition that information to other communities or what does that sharing look like? Um, it could look like um, a data dashboard. So mm -hmm. building that out that there is just transparency with the community and other stakeholders who are interested in learning about how this is going. So um, very early idea of thinking about how can we get this out on a public dashboard so people can see metrics and see how the program is um, operating. Um, and really that'll sit here with Pillsbury United Communities for us to really think through how we how we do that. So I know you're housed here at Pillsbury because they're providing that support service for you, but your um, your work is not managed by Pillsbury directly. Is that correct, or how do you see your? I mean, are you an employee of Pillsbury? Oh, okay. I am an employee of Pillsbury. Okay. 
Um, and is that how Greenlight wanted to set that up, that they wanted a local organization that would be able to employ you and do okay? Yes. So Greenlight Fund um, did a, an, a similar assessment to how they identified LEAD as a program to then do an assessment of local organizations that could house and host this program. So including the um, physical pieces of um, the LEAD program, as well as the project management aspect of it. Um, so for folks listening that are not familiar, can you describe Pillsbury United Communities? Sure. Pillsbury United Communities has a long history in the Minneapolis um, community. We've been around for 140 years, um, first founded as a settlement house, um, and has since evolved to include a host of supportive service programs to various communities throughout our um, various community centers that are across um, the South Minneapolis area, as well as North Minneapolis, um, as well as a collection of social enterprises as well. Um, so things like the Sister Boutique, which was um, sort of a youth, um, I think started as a youth program, who now some of our, our youth are now running that as, a, as adults and as employees are running a boutique um, in the neighborhood. So um, really an organization that invests in the community um, and whose goal, our goals are to really um, empower people and socially, physically, economically um, to be prosperous. So what do you think as you're looking at those case manager hires, um, what, what are kind of the next steps that you see in how this newer process evolves in this community? If you've had some examples to look at from Seattle, for example, of a, a past iteration, uh, how do you learn from that and think about how you move forward once you do have those case managers ready to go? Folks call 911, the, and uh, somebody from law enforcement or the fire arrives, and they know that that's a resource that's available, and they feel like it's the, um, the, the right intervention at that point that they call in a case manager. That's great because there's fewer people there to kind of get clued in. But the rest of the community that may not want to call 911 in the first place, um, you know, if you start thinking about, all right, we've got some case managers, but, you know, that that level of how do we build some trust with a community to say there is another way to start addressing some of these things that lead into all kinds of other issues. Um, but um, there's, there's a, I mean, I, I can foresee a, a moment of somebody thinking to themselves, well, wait a minute, are you from the government? Are you just a different name? Am I... Uh, are they just putting a, a, a nice, you know, a happier face on what this is? Because um, especially here in Minneapolis, there's been um, a couple of different conversations about do we uh, eliminate what had been called the police department in favor of some other kind of larger public safety department. And that was decided not to happen over a ballot initiative and city council actions and whatnot. And now people coming in and saying, well, now there's going to be a different layer of response and I can see a confused and concerned public going, I, I just heard about this thing, but is that a thing? Is that really trustworthy? I mean, it seems like there's some work to do on that end of getting started. Once you've got case managers that can actually respond to people, um, that getting known is one thing, getting trusted is another. Got it. So part of what um, we'll be doing once we have the case managers hired is joining community meetings, meeting people, sharing what the program is, sharing who the case managers are and what their work is. Um, and another aspect of the lead program is the creation of what will be called a community leadership team. 
So we will involve community from a variety of perspectives and backgrounds on this team as um, a group who can help to course correct if they're not feeling like the program is meeting their needs, but then also as an information sharing forum um, for us to share back how the program is running, how clients are doing um, with respect to their privacy and confidentiality, but sharing some high level information on how is it operating for the clients as well. Um, and then also to help us identify other members of the community who don't know about LEAD and who we can engage with to make sure that they do know about it as well, um, to continue to figure out and think about how can we increase the awareness of this and how and to make sure that people know that it's a resource they can access. Yeah, I, and that's got a level of challenge um, just with the level of noise. And I, I think clarifying all of that, because there's been a lot that's happened in this community the last few years, people trying to have this conversation and to add a layer is going to be hard. I think it's going to be harder still, though, to um, build some trust that this is uh, a realistic, usable alternative for people to do. Um, even if they heard about it, even if they know there's a website, to go, what happens You know, when I do that? I'm not sure how much time or energy that takes. And I think part of it is just this community has been through so much. Uh, to to think, you know, if it had been three years ago when you were starting this, I, I think you might have had an easier hill to climb. But um, the the world of Minneapolis 2022 is, I think, understandably, you know, a little apprehensive about anybody coming in and saying, we finally cracked this nut, we got an idea, and uh, a community going, yeah, I've heard that before, and I don't know. And you know, I don't want to be doubting. I want to be optimistic about uh, any charities getting together to meet a need. I, I really do. I just acknowledge the level of challenge you may be um, taking on. Gosh, bless you for taking it on. I, I want it to be successful, but I do want to kind of just understand um, building trust is, I think, hard. It is. And I'd say sort of how our case managers move at the speed of trust with their clients <laughs> our program is gonna move at the same speed of trust with our community. Um, so starting small, enrolling clients, reporting back to the community on how it's working for those initial clients, um, and to just stay in relationship and conversation with the community um, to build small pieces of trust and hopefully um, have them lean on us and see um, the impact that it's having both on them as a community member and as the people that they're referring in. Um, and just hope to build that bit by bit. It'll be a slow process for all of us, um, but it's an important one. So for people listening outside the Twin Cities community, if they're interested in learning more about what you're doing here and maybe finding ways to do something in parallel or even in conjunction with what you're doing, what's the, the next thing for them to do? Um, always happy for people to reach out to me. Um, you can contact me through our website, leadmpls.org. Um, and then there's also a LEAD National Support Bureau. Um, and they are an organization that provides support, technical assistance to sites across the country and even okay. internationally um, to discuss ideas with people who are sort of permeating over whether or not this is a good fit for their um, community and then can help provide that more long-term support to get it launched and implemented. So definitely reach out to me and the National Support Bureau is also a resource. 
Is that also funded by Greenlight, the national work? It is not. Oh, okay. um, so the National Support Bureau um, was created as LEAD started to expand to other sites across the country. There are 60 other sites like ours um, who are implementing this program. Um, and they provide support and technical assistance, like I said, to those other programs. Um, they are staffed by individuals who were previous case managers, who were previous law enforcement officers who championed this in their communities. Um, and they provide a unique sort of um, perspective on how this operates across the country. And how does that get paid for? I do not know. Okay. Uh, good to know that there's other charitable works happening and they've got their own responsibilities and you're just working on getting this successful here in Minneapolis. So um, I'm always uh, poking at that question of, um, you know, what I would love to hear, of course, is, well, you know, Mackenzie Scott dropped $3 billion on them and they just decided to go do it. Oh, cool. Let's, let's go do that. Uh, so uh, if Mackenzie Scott's people are listening, you know, they, um, contact Natasha here. She'll be happy to take a check and see about getting this work expanded. It is one of the biggest challenges, though, in what we're doing to um, think about the needs of um, it would be more effective to have more case manager style folks in community on the streets talking to people. But there's a you know resource question there of are we going to dedicate the resources to doing that? Uh, not are there the resources because Mackenzie Scott has got resources and she's working on getting them distributed as quickly as she can. So again, I, you know that's great, but there's only so many people like that and there's only so many taxpayer dollars that are diverted and eventually we got to start figuring out um, where uh, the community comes in and says the charitable component component of what we're doing, the nonprofit component of what we're doing, can get some public support, but it may need to also seek individual donors, uh, other foundation givers, whatever in the world the thing may be, to get us to the level of response we need in community. And uh, you know, as much as I would love to say that that's a taxpayer-funded responsibility, we may be waiting a really long time for the taxpayers to fund all of that responsibility. So we may have to be more creative than that. So we're just about out of time. Uh, as you're thinking about um, other folks, are there other uh, uh, words of advice or ideas you want to leave them with in this work? What, what gives you hope to keep doing this? This is challenging, right? Uh, and I, I, I'm just assuming that, you know, you, you didn't take this for the paycheck, right? There, there was a reason why you've got faith that this is the right thing to do. Um, why, why this? Why did you decide to come do this? Uh, my background is in public health, um, and I have a strong passion and belief that um, the criminal justice system is not meeting the needs of individuals who are struggling with mental health um, conditions, who are struggling with substance use, um, and in fact exacerbates those conditions um, through incarceration. Um, so I believe in this work because I think that it will move the needle in terms of linking people to community-based supports and also address the gross racial disparities that we are seeing in our criminal justice system, particularly for black indigenous individuals who are suffering from, who are impacted by mental health conditions, by substance use. And I see LEAD as a program that can pay particular attention to those um, communities, to those individuals, and to provide them with a different way of su supporting them. That is a wonderful way to close. Uh, Latasha Jennings is the uh, lead project manager of Let Everyone Advance with Dignity. Latasha, thanks for your time today. Thank you.